Welcome to Come Queens, the pussy positive podcast challenging cultural norms around our body, sexuality, and pleasure so that we can smash the fucking patriarchy one conversation at a time. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Grace. On this week's episode, we conclude our conversation with Donna Freitas, author of Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention. We talk about telling our stories with each other and how mandatory reporting can deter disclosures of sexual harassment and violence. We also talk about healing and creating trust for ourselves and others as we move past our sexual trauma so that we can enjoy the beauty and fun of our own sexuality. After reading your book and after talking about our experiences right. with each other and um we were just like, do you think it's worthwhile to ever disclose to an institution or an employer, or do you just skip that step? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do think it's a dangerous game. Uh, because because they later realize they're just building their case against you yeah. as soon as you say something, right? Yes, I th- I think that that is the thing. And I remember um, when all the when Me Too started happening, and then you know people were coming out of the woodwork. I remember reading in the New York Times, I think it was the business section. They had an article about the role of human resources when I think I wrote about it in the memoir. Um, the role of human resources when you bring a complaint of sexual harassment or assault um, with you know like your boss at a company. And how um, it w- the article was clearly saying, like, they are not your advocate. They are the company's advocate. Like, you need to realize that even if the person you have gone to, you know, and human resources feels for you, is worried about you, is upset on your behalf, that person may be, you know, um, they, may, they may not be able to help you in the way that they wish to because they work for the company, not for you. And I just remember, like all these like light bulbs going off in my head when I read that. Cause I was like, Oh, <laughs> like we should know that. Like everybody needs to know that because that's important information. Like that means that you, you shouldn't like, I, I was thinking about how like, gosh, you shouldn't go without a lawyer <laughs> like to, to go see human resources. Like, what does that mean? And so I don't, I don't know. I don't, I I mean, I think we have to figure out as a culture, a society, um, how, how can we fix this? Because, you know, people, people need to have safe spaces and individuals that they can go to at their institutions, because the problem is these things, sexual harassment, sexual violence happens within our institutions. And especially if we are students or if we are employees, we depend on those institutions for our survival. And so we have to look at the fact that sometimes um, people at those institutions that we depend on for survival um, behave in ways that are destructive to our lives. And so how, how can we contend with that um, without losing everything and you know, without, without being victimized again and I like to think especially that universities are forces for good in our society, that like all is not lost. Um, but I, I'm still waiting to see um, institutions like the university behave in responsible, ethical ways in response to the situation, like really 
have members of communities sit down and say, how can we fix this? How can we make sure that um, victims have real advocates when these things happen? And what I see instead at universities, which depresses me, is um, so much obsession with mandatory reporting. There's such a cover my ass, cover our asses um, response as opposed to like, what does this person need to be okay? And that really makes me angry. I think that, yeah, and I think that often you find women in roles of human resources. That's actually making me think about that more as you're saying it, because I remember one time I downloaded the whole organizational structure of a corporation I worked for to see how many women were in management. I was I had mm-hmm. some free time in a spreadsheet, <laughs> and um, I discovered that, um, you know, I think only 16% of management were women, and then, but half of those were HR. And so I wonder whether they place women strategically mm-hmm. in those roles for yeah. that purpose, or maybe it's not that insidious. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's upsetting to think about. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just, one of the things, um, that I, I've just seen universities working overtime to do is to to try to justify mandatory reporting, like every which way. And I, I'm sorry, but I I think it is in theory they'll tell you, oh well, this forces us to be um, open and to comply, you know, with like we we have to respond to a like to, to a situation. So like, and then we have to document it. So that's sort of what they're hiding behind. But everybody knows that um, that mandatory reporting makes it way more intimidating for someone to come forward. And so I think it's a way of um, suppressing, you know, or, or essentially like making it more difficult for victims to come forward. Because essentially what you do is you make every single person on campus, except for therapists, um, unsafe for, for us, you know, a person to tell about what's happened to you. And, you know, I, or because you risk triggering all of these other phone calls and, you know, responses. And I just feel like it's another, like, here we are. And after everything that we know about what's going on with sexual violence and sexual harassment, you know, institutions are putting themselves in positions where they get to look the other way all over again. But at the same time, say we're doing something. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting you know, it's interesting because I don't think that something can just go through, like when you're talking about the victim leading what they want their path to look like, because a lot of your story is you saying, I'm taking back my story Mm -hmm. and the victim should be the one who gets to, gets to determine because they haven't been able to decide what's happened to them up to that point. Um, then they should get to decide moving forward. But when you work within systems and you start making rules, it doesn't leave a lot of room for gray area. Well, I just remember, and I wrote about this in the memoir, when I told um, the first person that I told what was happening to me, um, and I was terrified to tell him because I was terrified what he would say and if he would judge me. And, you know, 
he, I remember how he listened and we were there for like hours at this cafe because it took me forever to tell him everything. And once I started telling him, I just told him the whole story and it took ages and, you know, he listened and listened. And then I remember just him looking at me and saying, what do you want to happen? And I was, I was like, it, it, like it, it literally, I just remember just suddenly just feeling this huge, incredible, like relief or just the idea that like he was going to help me like that. This person wanted to know what did I want? Like he didn't, he didn't even like share like, Oh, well I think this, like he wasn't like opining about what had happened. Um, he wanted to know what I needed. And it was this transformative moment for me where I was like, I am not alone. And someone wants to know what I think. And it was so huge to have that power in that moment, because I think it was the first moment I felt like I had any bit of power to do anything and, and all that time after being silent and so helpless. And so I, I think about that all the time, how meaningful that moment was and just how, what are they teaching us to do now at universities to essentially, before someone could even get words out of their mouth about what they just went through and what they want to tell you, to tell students, for example, I just want you to know that if you tell me anything that is X, Y, or Z, I'm going to have to report it, <laughs> you know? And so you're essentially, before they can even speak, telling them, by the way, you have no agency here, you have no power um, over your own story. And I think that is a, um, a toxic crippling thing to do to victims. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, that's such a heavy question. Cause I was like putting it in my own perspective. And I was like, I don't like, now I have autonomy. Now I have, now you're giving it back to me. What am I supposed to do? Like and <coughs> you had an immediate answer to that. And yet the, university couldn't follow through on your, your request. It was, uh, yeah, it was really heavy response. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I feel like this is such a depressing conversation. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, we want to, no, well, no, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that when you, but you've taken back your power now, like mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's what I feel about the book is like, now you've just said, I don't, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to make, like you made the rules right. for this. And I think that that. Yeah, that was, that was nice. It was, um, it was strange to realize when I started writing, um, it was kind of this moment, uh, when I was, I was writing this other book about consent on campus and, um, for, I do all these books with Oxford university press about my research and work about sex and consent on campus. And so I was writing this book about it. And that's when I started realizing like, Oh, like this, this work that I'm doing is, um, is just entwined with what happened to me. And I had never let myself think about that before. And, so I, you know, opened up this document on my laptop, like on the side of the other one that I was working on and I titled it consent, a memoir of unwanted attention. And I started like writing stuff, um, on the side and, and I had this moment where, um, cause I had been writing novels for years and I had this moment where I was like, Oh, like 
I've become this literary person, <laughs> like mm-hmm. as a, like as a way of surviving the fact that I didn't make it in academia, like, like I was supposed to. And so I ended up becoming a writer instead. And so now I have these like literary skills and I was like, I could put those to use. <laughs> and there was something really, it was like, I hadn't realized I could do that before. And then suddenly I realized like, oh, I'm in a position to do that now. Like I put myself in a position to tell my story and not only tell it, but tell it in a way that a lot of other people might not be able to. And too bad for this man, (laughs) you know, that I turned into this person, like the person that I am or the person that could do this. And it felt really, um, really exciting for me to realize that I like I have a real voice, like I've, I've worked really hard to have that voice, but I I have it and I was going to use it to tell the story. And it felt incredibly, um, like, you know, this is where conversation gets really cheesy sounding, but like, it felt incredibly transformative and, um, to be able to, to write like that. And then to have, to have people who are interested in that story, um, and to just, it, it, it made me realize that I, I do have power. It took me a long time to get it, but I, I have some now and it's nice to be able to exercise it in this way. Do you think how you operate in the world, the, another part that really resonated with me was about your confidence. And I very much, you know, felt like I was raised, you can be anything you Mm want to be, you you know, and I just went out into the world, just like I'm taking it on. And then you get smacked in the face with, with something like this, that does then take your power away. And then when you're trying to move forward from that, do you feel like how you operate in the world is, is still from a place of that kind of confidence that you clearly had in, in the beginning of the book? Have you been able to regain that? Um, or what strategies have you used to manage that? I mean, I think I'm still me (laughs) and in in the sense that I am, I am bubbly and I am, you know, I like to talk to people and I am unafraid to ask questions and I enjoy dialogue. Like I enjoy talking to people, um, whether they're my students or, or mentors, like, or, you know, other writers that I meet or, or you both, or, you know, I, I enjoy conversation. And I think, uh, I have tried to live my life, um, still enjoying that, I guess. I think the difference is that, or maybe I'm, I'm more myself now that I, I, or have gotten back to myself. Cause I, I do feel like for a good, a good 10 years after this happened, I was, pretty crippled, um, like socially. And I was angstritten. Like I was just, uh, really, I really was struggling. I was a mess <laughs> for a really long time. I had a hard time functioning in the workplace and, and just in, in general. Um, but I, I think, you know, here I am still, but I, I have moments when, I get worried or I become insecure or, and I think more of it though, it's on the other side now where I have a, you know, I'll, 
I'll see my students. And I'm definitely the kind of professor who, if I haven't seen, if I have a student who I, I had for three classes and then I haven't seen her for like three years and then I run into her in the hallway, I want to be like, oh, Sam, you know, give her a hug or something. And I'm like, I'm that professor. I'm very enthusiastic with my students and I get very excited when they accomplish things or when I see them. And and then I have these moments where I sort of step outside myself and I'm like, oh, like, am I being inappropriate um, with my gregariousness or, or like just my excitement? Like, are they going to get the wrong idea or something? And I feel like that I have that voice in my head a little bit. And um, I had I had a grad student who um, I think most of my grad students have gone and read the memoir and some of them were like afraid to tell me, but then they'll like, it'll come up somehow. And I'll be like, did you read, you read my memoir? And they're like, yes. I'm like, what did you tell me? And they're like, cause I don't know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I had, um, this one grad student that I was working with a lot and she, she read the memoir and, you know, she's someone who I think is so talented and I've been trying to help her and, so, um, and now that she's graduated, you know, I'll be like, Oh, like, you know, send me your pages. We'll, we'll meet, we'll have lunch and we'll talk about them. And then suddenly after I say that, I'm like, she's read my memoir. Does she think I'm like, and like, this is the beginning of like me. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, and, and then I have to talk myself back off the ledge and be like, okay, Donna, like, you're not going to do that first of all. And it's okay. right. like, you're being a mentor. Like you're being, you're being the person that you are. Like you are genuinely excited about this student and you want to help her and you're not doing anything wrong. Um, but I, I think I have that voice in my head more than anything. And I actually, I felt so nervous about it that she had read my memoir and that she was going to think about me saying, let's get to, let, let's have lunch and sit down and read your pages that I was like, you know, I know you read my memoir and I don't want you to be afraid. And she was like, oh my gosh, like, please, you know, like, I don't think that. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah. That's so I, interesting I like that you would think of yourself as being, yeah, as taking your experience and worrying that that could seem predatory to someone else. Whereas you, like you said, you know, your intent isn't there and mm -hmm. clearly, the intent of the person who, you know, of your professor was very different, just as it was very different from the intent of all the other professors that you visited during office hours with, or, you know, spent time with as an, as an eager learner, you know? So I think that that's interesting that you put that on it, that it's just a perspective I wouldn't have thought of. I, I try not to, um, I mean, I, I think, I'm incredibly sensitive to the fact that I would never want to put my students in that position, mm -hmm. but I also don't want to stop being me or being a good mentor or showing enthusiasm. Like I don't want, I, I want to be able to be the person that I am and the teacher that I am without making my students uncomfortable. And I guess you can only just do your best at a certain level. And but I, I do like, I, I think about that because I know what it felt like to be on the other side of, um, of someone. And then I try to remind myself, well, he was pathological about it. And I, I don't think I am. <laughs> I hope I'm not. <laughs> so I don't think my students would say that I was. Um, but I, I also, I try to tell myself that, um, he doesn't get to take that away too, you know, like my own, 
enjoyment of my students and that relationship that I have with them and the enthusiasm that I have for him. Cause there is a way in which sometimes when I have those insecurities or I worry about it, I think this is something else that he has taken, you know, from me, it's just the enjoyment of my ability to just freely enjoy that role that I have with these students that I care so much about. And so, um, so I, you know, I try to work through that, but it's complicated because I, I, I don't ever want to be doing that to any of my students. So, um, yeah, but I definitely am the professor who would, um, th- like say like, let's get together for coffee and like, look at your page right. <laughs> and like, look at what you're working on, or let me give you a deadline. And, and so then, you know, to make you get this thing done and then we'll talk about it. And yeah. But then again, I try to tell myself that all my college professors too, like that we would go to barbecues at their houses, you know, and like we knew their kids and it was a wonderful part of my undergraduate experience. So, Yeah. What about trust going into other relationships? Like I know I've struggled. My person definitely built me up in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. telling me that I was very smart, that I, you know, had a lot of promise in the career that I was in. And I think that, you know, your professor was starting, that's, you know, was encouraging your learning and um probably making, like you were saying at the beginning, making you feel really good and you liked that part. Um, and then now when people do that, do you, do you question, do you have a distrust for that automatically to, um, um, no, I don't know that I do. (laughs) I mean, maybe I think I'm just, I think I'm extra sensitive in the academic space, Mm -hmm. but I'm, less so outside of it. I think partly in the academic space, because there is so much, um, condescension that goes on with, for male to female professors too. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like you deal with that all the time. Um, I I mean, that is the primary space in which I'm operating, you know, uh, is, is that academic world. And, um, and so I, that's where I'm thinking about it the most, but I, in my, in my social life, I, I mostly just have a large group of people I've known for a really long time that I spend time with. And so in some ways I don't run into these situations unless I'm at like conferences or something. And then I think, I think about it more, but mostly I've, um, you know, the, the writing world in my experience or the one that I've built (laughs) around me is full of wonderful women (laughs) <laughs> and well, wonderful women and gay men. <laughs> so, um, and you know, it, it feels like a pretty safe place for me. Um, and I know it, that's not true for all writers. I think that there are different, uh, different, um, communities that people are in, but the one that I'm in is, is pretty wonderful. And so that's been really nice. Yeah. So I just enjoy, I think, um, it's harder for me to, to trust, to let people into my life in a really intimate way, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I have all these trusted individuals who, who know me and my life and my life is very full in that sense. And so I think in some ways, so I'm I'm not on social media. So, um, at all. And that's because of this. Um, it's because I'm very sensitive. Um, I'm very sensitive to people having access to anything about me. 
and uh, I'm always controlling who has accent and so uh, who has access. And so there are the people that I've have been in my life forever who I don't think about, like they're just, you know, they're just part of my life. And so I don't think about whether or not they have access to me, but there's something about social media that is so, um, untenable in that way. Like people just can reach you however they want. Like, you know, the, and you're posting things and anyone can see them and, or the ideas that they would see them. And I think, um, that really, that's one of the lingering things that I have. Like I had a moment when I was, I was trying to be on Facebook many years ago and, and I realized, um, every time I posted, which was pretty rare because I felt so resistant to putting stuff up. And I was like, I'm an author. I need to post things. And, um, you know, but every time I did, I was so like riddled with anxiety and dread. And I remember I had just made a post. I was in Barcelona and I had just made this post and it was like a really nice post. And like, I think it was like a picture of me on a balcony or something. And, it was sunny out. And then I like posted it. Cause I was like, I, I should post, you know, I should post on my Facebook page. Cause I'm in Barcelona and this is nice. And then I went outside and I was walking around Barcelona and I was filled with dread, like just dread. Like you wouldn't believe. And I was like, what is wrong with me? It's sunny out. There's wine. Like why, why do I feel such dread? Everything is fine. And, and it took me, I was walking around and walking around trying to figure it out. And this, it was, wasn't the first time I had felt the dread, but it was, I think it was the fact that I was in this situation that was so unbelievably lovely and I was feeling it, that it, I just kept dwelling on it. And, and finally I realized like, oh, this is my PTSD. Like Facebook, posting on Facebook is triggering my PTSD because even though I know that people are going to say nice things about my photo, like no one's going to be mean, like it's going to be fine. I'm going to go back and there's going to be all these, like the fact that I had like just like invited unfettered access and commentary was like in a very direct way that could just reach me directly. So it wasn't like a book where people were holding it. Like they, you know, if people are holding a book, they can't just like talk to you directly. Like, you know, they would have to like write you or, um, and so I realized like, Oh, um, Facebook is triggering me, my PTSD. And so I agonized about it for a while. And then I just thought, okay, this is one of those battles I'm just not going to wage. And I just took down all my accounts and that's how I've been, um, ever since. So, so by the way, um, you having me on your podcast is really wonderful because, um, I don't, have social media. And so I really appreciate you helping facilitate me talking about this stuff in a safe way. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) This is seriously, it's been such a privilege to talk to you and just, I just, I definitely personally feel more empowered both by reading the book and having this conversation. Um, even just to feel like, not alone. Oh yeah, definitely. You know? You're our first interview too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we didn't disclose. I'm <laughs> we didn't disclose that before. <laughs> I want to say it because I was so excited. Yeah, I know. We're so excited oh. about it. And my mom oh, read. I'm honored. I have to ask you. So wait, how did you decide on your name? I knew, I knew okay. that was going <laughs> to Do you watch uh, Broad City? Have you ever seen that show? Um, I haven't. Okay. It's 
it's well worth watching, it's but it's just it's too, it's very feminist. Show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, show, but yeah. Kind of millennial feminist perspective. And this one character, Alana, she's going through a rough patch after Trump gets elected and she can't reach her orgasm. And she's like, why can't, why can't I come? Like she has all this PTSD from Trump being elected and all the, all the things going around. And she finally sees a sex therapist and unlocks that part of her brain and then she's like i want to be a cum queen i'm a cum queen <laughs> so kind of the idea behind our show we just we just kind of started talking and uh realized that we didn't know a lot about our own bodies or that yeah. like a, I, I think this is an effort for us to take control right in exactly. a in a way when we don't necessarily have the answer mm-hmm. but we're taking a step um so we kind of we cover all different kinds of things related to anatomy or ways that women are affected by like the medical industry. Um, we've done, yeah, we've done lots of different, um, or like scented feminine hygiene products, yeah. just thing, trying to educate ourselves about <laughs> what is actually helpful to your body yeah. and what's not, what's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Honestly, when I saw your email come in my inbox, I was like, who's this? <laughs> Did you think it was like a porn like spam? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, I figured when I saw Queens, I figured it was like, <laughs> it was, it was like some sort of feminist thing. Well, and, well we oh, Googled come Queens later and let me tell you, it's a yeah, very it's, different it's story. Not I, I signed <laughs> up and said it really, really just never thought, Well, I mean, me. I'm generally and interacting with feminist so folks, criminal. so I assumed I was so was, young I, and I was so desperate. I assumed. <laughs> about all those things but I, and I just think it made me laugh so hard that and so, um, for, so it's um, for doing that you know it's really me. fun um, to meet you both an institution and, and of I, education I really mean like, I met what I, I was literally about learning how, um, about like I, how voice well, was I so am honored to be your first interview literally <laughs> the building next door it to is the really one where I signed this document one of the things that I and, um, um, enjoyed and I, about I just sort of having decided any book they paid that I've done so but this money. book in particular <laughs> was is just the conversations I get to have with people like you and I do really because I'm not on social media um, the price, you know, I do it, really um, rely on, took on um, my life people helping and spread my future the word, and my career, you know, about my and book so or just, I just, you know, decided there you know is what, something um, safer me, to like, me um, about having this conversation with you both, um, you know, and, you know, knowing it's going to be in public, of course, like everything, you know, books are in public and all that, this conversation's in public, but there's something safer about all for me about all of us like doing it together and having it facilitated by you all and so I really do appreciate that um because otherwise I would just be silent and faceless behind you know (laughs) behind my laptop writing my words right no that human connection such a big part are there are there any pieces of advice that you would want to give to our listeners about um just either how how you would handle these situations or how, or even I think about preparing girls, you know, preparing the next generation to, um, yeah, come for, come up with solidarity or (laughs) how to move forward. (laughs) I mean, I'd say two things. I think one of the, one of the things we are struggling with, with me too, and that we haven't figured out yet. And that I certainly struggled with when I was in grad school and I was going through all of this is, you know, given, given what you're talking about in your podcast is, is, is like, how, how do you retain this erotic part of yourself or the, mm-hmm. you know, this, like the, 
like your sexuality or just yes. the fact that you're a sexual being and that that part of you is a fun and playful or it can be it should be this like fun playful exciting part of your identity that you may want to flaunt at different points and like how do you negotiate that wonderful part of you and that, that exciting part of you um with the fact that then you collide with the world and sometimes the world will respond to that part of you in the way that it should, you know, by celebrating it or by making you feel great. You know, you meet someone who, you know, you connect with in that way and it's wonderful, but you can't really control who it is that's going to respond to that part of you. And sometimes it's some dude at a bar, you know, who you're like, <laughs> get from me, you know, like, yeah. sometimes it's your boss or it's your professor. And, you know, it seems to come out of nowhere because you weren't directing it at them, but they took it as, you know, they, they, you know, that they want that part of you. And I think that's a really hard thing to learn how to negotiate. I feel like that's our task right now. Like how do we figure out how to be sexual beings, um, as individuals, but in, in public and celebrate that side of ourselves without, um, without being hurt, you know, because of it, you know, without someone trying to hurt us or, or getting the wrong idea. Like, mm -hmm. so, um, so I think that, um, but I, I would say, you know, as someone who was a victim and, you know, went through all that I did, the, I think about the number one most important thing that happened that helped start to dig me out of the situation was finally gaining the courage to tell someone, um, which took me forever. <laughs> and I was so terrified. Um, but once I did, I wasn't alone and I was lucky. I found someone I could truly trust. Like I had a friend that I could truly trust. And I thought so much about who was I going to tell? Cause there, I could have told other people, but I told this one particular person for all sorts of reasons. And he's, he was a really trustworthy individual and like just finding that person who you really feel like you can be safe with and just telling that person, even if they don't have any power technically at your institution, if you're in that sort of situation, like just knowing I wasn't alone anymore was the single most important thing that could have happened. And it helped me begin to um, make my way back to a place where eventually many years later, I was able to be healthy again. And, um, so I think just finding that person is, is the most important thing you could possibly do. So, cause I guess when I, you know, I talked so much earlier about how, um, you know, my university and the situation like took away my voice, but I did have a voice with those people that I could trust. And that is really how I began to put the pieces back together. So, um, so that would be my advice. Yeah. I love how you linked it back into pleasure because I think back to what the name of our show is right. though, the idea is that how can we fully um, enjoy this part of ourselves that's so amazing, like the pleasure that we can have um, from our sexuality mm -hmm. while also facing threats, you right. know, too. And how, you know, and I think that being able to express that part of ourselves freely without worrying about being harmed by it is, is one of the goals of our show. Mm -hmm. Let's figure that out. <laughs> Just a side note. I have a, um, 
I have a book for kids coming out in the fall. It's for, um, uh, eight, eight and up really like eight, eight to 12 or eight to 13 year olds, but it's called the big questions book of sex and consent. And that's pretty much what I'm trying to figure out how to do. <laughs> like how, like it's, it's a book about, um, like all, you know, sex and consent and all kinds of things, but it's definitely meant it's like this big hearted, um, let's figure this stuff out. And like, this is a wonderful part of who you are. And like, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean to be in the world and, and be the, like, be a sexual being? That's sort of the primary question. And then, um, a lot of it is about like sexual ethics and relational ethics. Like we are all engaging in ethics all the time and we just don't really think about it, but like, let's, let's be aware of that part too. And try to think about, um, what does it mean to be a sexual being in relation to other people? Like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how, so I'm curious, I'm sure people will freak out because they'll think it's, you know, um, there's too much content for, for one so young, but, um, but I, it's this question I'm always thinking about, um, how do we, how do we, how do we empower kids to realize and enjoy the side of themselves while at the same time, um, being safe in the world and, um, and treating others the way that we want them to treat them. So, yeah, I I feel like the cultural, and I think particularly Americans, I I Mm -hmm. don't know. I mean, I don't have enough experience with other cultures around the world, but I mean, I feel like our culture very much wants to deny sexuality, Oh yeah, especially for children. And then I think when you do that, then you open up the door for the secrecy, for the shame and, for victimization after you've just said, oh, none of this exists, basically, you know? Mm -hmm. We live in a state that doesn't teach... I mean, we don't have comprehensive sex education. I know. Um, So... Well... And that's... I'm so so grateful for that book. That's why it's so important to teach... Kit. teach children this because then you end up with a generation of women who don't even know the extent of our clitoris. (laughs) Right. We don't know our own anatomy. (laughs) Right. So I think that's awesome. And I would definitely send, when that releases, send it our way so that we can put it out. We are so appreciative that Donna took the time to talk with us and for all the work that she's doing. Don't forget to download her book, Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention and check out her other work as well. We walk away from this with the reassurance that we are not alone in our experiences. The more we talk about this uncomfortable topic, the more we're able to break the cycle of abuse. Thanks, as always, to Bombay Gasoline for our theme music. If you haven't already, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Come back next week for our discussion of the Hulu documentary series, Hillary.